Welcome to Opt Outcast, an official podcast of the Opt Out Media Foundation. I'm Alex Koch, co-founder and executive director of the foundation, which oversees a free news aggregation app for exclusively independent, trustworthy news media. On this edition of Opt Outcast, climate editor Christian Salazar speaks with Christian Downey, a political scientist and professor at the Australian National University, where he researches climate and energy politics. Downey talks about a paper he recently published that traces how fossil fuel trade associations in the U.S. are investing billions of dollars on political activities. This full episode is available to paying opt-out members, ballers, and OGs. Thank you so much for supporting our mission. So, um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, uh, just a little bit about Opt Out. Um, we're a news organization that has created a network of uh, over 180 independent news organizations that have come together to try to amplify their reach and reach new audiences. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things we're doing is a, a lot of focus on climate uh, climate crisis issues because um, they're so important to the conversation right now. Um, and so wanted to talk to you about this uh, study that you did recently, um, published uh, late last year, and you're one of the co-authors. Um, uh, it is called Following the Money, Trade Associations, Political Activity and Climate Change. Right. So interesting. And so just a little bit of background on you. Um, I understand you're an associate professor in the School of Regulation and Global Governance at the U. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, based at the Australian National University in Canberra. Um, and I guess I've been working on climate and energy politics for, for more than a decade now in, in various roles, working in think tanks, in government, and uh, most recently uh, in academia. And so much of my work these days, or a large part of it, uh, is looking at the political activities of business groups in the uh, in the energy sector and the political strategies they've been using to to advance or obstruct action on climate change, particularly in your country in the US. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, I'm interested in why you're focused on the US, but um, you also wrote a book, "Business Battles in the US Energy Sector: Lessons for a Clean Energy Transition." Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, sounds great. Um, so I, so yeah, I, I, I guess one of the first questions I had was why trade associations in the U.S. You're you're based in Australia, but I know you have a very global outlook. Uh, just looking at some of your research, um, but I, I just wondered why this this focus in particular. Yeah, it's a good question. So as I mentioned, I've been working on the the, the politics of climate change and energy and the role that. Uh, business groups uh, such as firms and trade associations have played obstructing climate action. And one thing that really interests me is the sophistication of these strategies, the scale of them, the depth. And there's no better place to look really than the United States. Business groups in the oil and gas sector, coal, electric utilities um, have been very active politically in the US uh, you know, for more than 30 years now, um, shaping climate and energy policies way back since 
President Clinton first tried to introduce a carbon tax in 1992. So it's a it's a very interesting country to look at. Um, and of course, as one of the largest emitters in the world after China, it's also very important uh, that the US takes climate action if the world is to go close to meeting some of the objectives of the UN uh, Paris Agreement. And so when you uh, started approaching this um, this research you did with your co-author, uh, Professor, I'm going to get his name, pronounce his name wrong, Brule, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, Professor Robert oh. Brule. Yeah. Um, what, what led you to focus on trade associations in particular? Well, both of us have spent a lot of time looking at the role of firms, but trade associations, despite being very influential in the US, have not been talked about. They're really one of these big players in climate politics that not many people have looked at. And yet there's thousands and thousands of them across the US. Pretty much every sector has a trade association. Uh, A good example, say, is the oil and gas sector with the American Petroleum Institute is probably the the most well-known and the largest with revenues in, in the millions of dollars. Um, And these organisations have played a huge role in shaping energy policy, climate policy uh, for decades, and yet we know very little about what they do and about their political activities. Uh, So we were really interested in doing a systematic study of of what their revenues are, what their spending is, and how much, not only how much they're spending, but what are they spending on lobbying or public relations or grants to other organisations or political contributions, for example. And so that's what we set out to explore in this paper. And can you talk a little bit about how you went about your research? Because I find it's pretty interesting where you did it. Yeah, of course. So what we did is we looked at the tax filing returns of these companies. Oh, not these companies, let me say that again. What we did is we we followed the money essentially, and we looked at the tax filings of trade associations and if you go through these documents that the uh, the IRS provides, you can see not only how much revenue they get, and a lot of their revenue comes from membership dues. So if, so an organisation like the American Petroleum Institute has members such as ExxonMobil or Chevron, and these, these firms uh, pay membership dues, and, and that's where most of these trade associations get their revenue from. So we could analyse their revenue, but we could also look, by looking at these tax filings, we could also look at how much they're spending uh, on different activities, including, as I mentioned, things like lobbying, things like uh, um, grants to other organisations, public relations campaigns, and so on. So, you know, it was a lot of work to go through all these tax filings, but what it enabled us to do is to do a much more systematic analysis of the political activities of industry groups. And I understand you also interviewed, as part of this, uh, folks who, are, who work in the industry, VPs and others, to just sort of flesh out your your findings, correct? That's correct. So I can go into the findings in a, in a moment, but what we were interested in when we were looking at where they are spending the money, following the money shows us where the money's going, but it doesn't tell us why. Why are companies spending more on public relations? Sorry, why are trade associations spending more on public relations than lobbying, for example? Or why are they giving hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to a whole variety of organisations like like mayors and governors and universities and think tanks? So trying to understand that question of why, the best way to do that is to talk to the people that are allocating the money. So we did uh, interviews over the last uh, 18 months with 
um, around just under 30 people that were working in these different organisations to try and get their perspectives on, you know, their strategies and what they were doing. And so tell me, what what are the main findings that um, you think the public should know based on your research? Well, as I said, what we wanted to know is where are they spending their money? So, so you've got to remember that these uh, these trade associations, as I said, have been active on climate change for decades. Um, we know that, uh, for example, when James Hansen, that very well-known NASA scientist, sounded the alarm on climate change in 1988, three well-known trade associations, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Edison Electric Institute, and the American Petroleum Institute banded together to oppose uh, regulations on climate emissions and were very successful way back then in the early 90s in defeating the adoption of the Kyoto Protocol. So we wanted to see what's been happening in more recent years. And I guess the headline that we found, really, the headline takeaway is that trade associations spent $3.4 billion in 10 years on political activities, activities such as advertising, such as lobbying and political contributions. So a huge amount of spending. So that was the kind of first uh, thing that was that was very evident. And, you know, I don't, your paper came out at an interesting time because at the same time we were the House Oversight Committee here in Congress was uh, releasing a lot of documents about uh, as part of its investigation into climate disinformation uh, by the oil and gas industry. And among those papers, they they released uh, American Petroleum Institute statements, a lot of um, <clears throat> interesting documents that showed, uh, sort of backed up your findings, I think, um, showed their their focus on advertising and marketing. I don't know if you're familiar, you knew about this or? Yeah, no, I've been following, uh, I've been following those congressional inquiries from a distance. And it's been fascinating to to see some of the documents that has been dug up by that committee. And I mean, it was largely uh, consistent with what we found in our data. So what came, I guess, came as no surprise to us, and probably to many that work within the Beltway, is that the oil and gas sector was the largest political spender among trade associations. So in the decade that we looked at, they spent $1.3 billion on political activities. And no other group of trade associations came close. And you mentioned advertising and promotion. This came as a bit more of a surprise to us that when we were tallying up the data of how much different sectors were spending on advertising promotion, and this covers everything like mainstream media buyers to promote an industry or, say, the hiring of a public relations firm to target a particular issue before Congress. What we found is that spending on advertising promotion by trade associations totaled $2.2 billion over the decade. That's actually more than three times that that was spent on lobbying over the same period, which was $729 million. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Of course, buying media, say, in the Californian media market is very expensive. But I think these numbers also reflect the fact that trade associations play a very particular role in protecting the reputation of the firms they represent. So I think one reason that a group like, say, the American Petroleum Institute have taken the lead running, say, negative public relations campaigns is so that their members, such as Exxon or BP or Shell, are not tarred with the same brush. Um, 
And of course, that's not all they that's not all they were engaged in. But I think that's one of the reasons that we see uh, advertising promotion playing such a big role. And <clears throat> one of the things, what I was surprised, I was less surprised about the advertising because I mean, I feel like uh, I've seen so many examples recently of somewhat you know greenwashing, which is especially mm-hmm. after COP um, this year. Um, you know, there were a lot of discussions around the marketing by the oil and gas industry or fossil fuel industry in general around the COP, you know, uh, negotiations. I was surprised by the amount of money that was going towards think tanks and learning institutions. I mean, can you talk about a little bit about that finding? Yeah, of course. So, so we've mentioned about um, advertising promotion. They also spent huge amounts on lobbying. But as you say, one of their other findings was how much they spent on what we referred to as grants, but basically channeling uh, dollars to third parties. So across the, the period we looked at, trade associations spent $394 million on grants to other organisations. And this was very interesting to us because they gave money to basically everyone, to political organisations like associations of mayors or governors and national caucuses. They gave money to universities, think tanks, charitable foundations, even museums and historical societies received funding from trade associations in the energy sector as well. So we were interested in kind of what these were for and and the, the motivation for them varies quite a bit. And this came out in some of the interviews, but to give you some examples, many of the grants help their lobbyists gain access to members of Congress. So if you think about, say, a charitable dinner in D.C., where a $10,000 grant buys you a seat at the table next to the Senate finance chairman. That's obviously going to be very helpful to your lobbyists. Or, for example, think about grants that are channeled to local community groups. These can often help to boost an industry's reputation among that community. And as a result, you know, it helps with their social license to operate, whether they're operating a mine or, uh, you know, oil and gas drilling. So these grants serve many, many purposes. They're given to think tanks and universities often to commission research as well uh, and to different types of research institutes and, and economic consultancies. Too often we know from other research that, that this is framed in a way to ensure that the research findings uh, you know, are largely consistent with the commercial interests of a particular industry. So grants are sprayed around everywhere and, and for different purposes, but generally uh, they're done, uh, at least as far as we found, to support the other political activities that these industry groups engage in. And so taking all this, um, and you took talk a little bit about this in the paper, but what is this, what does this all this spending mean for people who are trying to uh get our countries to transition to more sustainable uh energy, uh green energy, you know, clean energy, as some people call it. Um what do your findings say to say about that? Well, I think our findings show that it's kind of concerning for advocates of climate change that those industries that have historically opposed climate policies, such as oil and gas, such as coal, such as utilities, they outspent those industries that typically support climate action, like the renewable sector, by a whopping $2 billion uh, against to $74.5 million by the renewable sector. So you see this huge discrepancy in the amount of money being spent by those industries that typically oppose action 
versus those that support. So that's obviously concerning for advocates of climate change. And it's also, I think, part of the explanation why it took Congress almost 35 years since uh, NASA scientist James Hansen first warned representatives about the dangers of climate change to pass a major climate bill, that being the Inflation Reduction Act that we saw uh, last year. So I think the the discrepancies in, in how much is being spent partly explains why Congress has taken so long to put in place significant action on climate change. The other point to make is that, of course, industry groups are only the tip of the iceberg. We know from other political science research that firms actually spend more on politics than trade associations. Now, I don't think any of this would come as a huge surprise to students of climate politics, to those those working in DC. But if money speaks louder than words, and we know that it often does, then I think mobilize, those mobilising for action on climate change are going to have to continue to ensure that they're not drowned out by those industries with the deepest pockets. The good news, of course, is that the Inflation Reduction Act shows that, that uh, advocates of climate change can win. And uh, as scientists keep warning us and as the impacts of climate change uh, are being felt around the world, we know that uh, that, that political battle, that's very important that it's won. And you, you've written a Going beyond this paper, you've written about uh, energy policy around the world. Um, can you put in context about you know what this means for, I guess, geopolitically, um, the fact that these trade associations associations have such, it seems, uh, so much money to spend on influence politics. Uh, what? It, how do you see that affecting? you know, the matters like the climate talks that the UN has, if anything? Well, the US has an outsized role in global affairs. Uh, it's been one of the drivers uh, of international climate talks. It's also, of course, particularly under the Trump administration, been one of the largest obstructors to in- obstructors to international action on climate change. So what happens domestically in the US has a huge influence on you know, international momentum for climate action. As I mentioned, you know, it's along with China, it's one of the two largest emitters in the world. So we need the US to take action. Um, And for example, the way it influences other countries, my own country here in Australia, we've, a lot of the positions we've taken at international UN climate negotiations have been very much shaped by the position of the US administration at the time. One of the reasons, if you go back, one of the reasons that Australia never ratified the Kyoto Protocol was in part because they decided to follow the position of the George W. Bush administration at the time. So many countries are influenced by what the US does. So the fact that these industry groups have played such a big role in uh in shaping what the US does, as I said, is concerning for advocates of climate change. Um, But what has been really positive uh, under the Biden administration is the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think think that is starting to, you know, trickle down to other countries as well, saying, okay, the US is actually starting to to walk the walk and, uh, and we should get our domestic house in order too. And Australia now for the first time in more than a decade, is starting to is starting to take uh, more significant action on climate change too. Um, there's a long way to go. Emissions are still rising, but um, if the US and Australia and other large emitters uh, can continue to put in place policies that uh, that reduce emissions, then um, then we'll have a much better chance of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. 
Um, and just just to bring it uh, around to the paper, in the conclusion, you point on a lot of directions this research could go in the future. What for you is the most interesting path or what are you looking to follow up on um, in terms of this research? Well, yes, as we say in the paper, there's much more that can be done. This is, we're only scratching the surface of the political activities of trade associations. Uh, we focused very much on what was happening in DC, what was happening at the national level. But we also know uh, from the work of many other scholars that these uh, that firms and also industry groups spend a lot of time and money um, trying to shape policies at the state level. So I think there's much more research to be done looking at the political activities of trade associations in California, in Massachusetts, uh, in Texas, and so on, to explore not only the money being spent, but how they've been shaping, you know, renewable portfolio standards and so on. So focusing uh, similar types of questions, but asking them at the state level, I think, is very important. And of course, uh, looking at the role of industry groups in other countries. The US is not the only country. Uh, my own country, Australia, has them, has uh, these types of trade associations, as do many other countries. So exploring their role in other jurisdictions, I think, is also is also a really uh, would be a fruitful path for future research. Are there are there global connections among these associations that you found? That wasn't something we looked at in this particular paper, but we do know that, uh, that you know, there are, for example, there's a World Coal Association. There are global uh, trade association bodies, um, and many of the firms that are members of national bodies are also members of global bodies and so on. So it's not something that we've looked at specifically, but, um, but my hunch is that there would be some strong global networks that, uh, that are playing a role here too. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, is there anything else that um, I I didn't ask you, but you wanted to make sure people understood about your paper or the research you're doing? No, just to thank you for having me, having me on the on the program. I guess I mean one of the point to say is people sometimes say, well, don't these organisations, these trade associations, have a legitimate role? And I think I think there's you know it's a good point. Industry associations do have a legitimate role to advocate on their behalf of their members. But I think what's really important to remember is this that should, should never be confused with what's in the interest of the public, which in this case, in the case of climate change, is to reduce emissions as quickly as possible. So we need to pay more attention to two groups like trade associations that historically have played such an important role in delaying uh, action on climate change and, and denying the science as well over recent decades. Right. Good point. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I look forward to seeing more of your research. So. Thanks so much, Kristen. It was really kind of you to have me and uh, yeah, looking forward, to, looking forward to tuning in. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt Out News. And don't forget to sign up for OptOut's free newsletters and download the OptOut app, aggregating financially independent, trustworthy news from over 175 outlets. Read, watch, and listen to the best of independent media. No native ads, no algorithms, no profit motive, just news curated by journalists. 
Find out more at optout.news.